I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gurnard people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. He's like, we're going to make a cabinet one day. I'm like, no, we're not. We're not. We're never going to do it. And he's like, no, no, we are. And I'm like, no, Charlie, we're not going to do it. And then I think it was halfway through vintage in, in 2022. And he's like, guess what? We're picking cabinet in two weeks. And I'm like, uh, excuse me? This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Sky Salter is one half of the duo that brings us Paralian wines. Some would say the better half. She and her partner in crime, Charlie Seppel, launched their small band in Wollonga, McLaren Vale in 2018. It was after a staggering 46 vintages between them, making wine for other people in other places that led them there. Hi Sky, thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure. I've been wanting to have you on for some time. I was just wondering if Charlie would let you, but he was he offered you up very freely. Yes, he does try to push me outside of my comfort zone often. <laughs> <laughs> what a cheeky bugger. Now, how are you and how is the beautiful Ginny? Ginny is good. Um, so, she's our dog um, <laughs> for any, anyone listening. She's beautiful. Uh, she's old. She's completely deaf at the moment. And we've just um, given in and finally got her a doggy door, which according to her only works one way. So it goes out, but then she can't get back inside. Oh, no. <laughs> they are good, those doggy doors. But yeah, a little bit of training is required. For everyone listening, Ginny is the most beautiful duck toller retriever. And if anyone hasn't looked up those dogs, you should, because I have to say they are probably the prettiest dogs on the planet. But she still looks like a puppy. I had no idea she was getting on in age. Yeah, she does. She's got a really, really youthful face and she still plays like a puppy. But, yeah, she's she's an old girl, 11 and a half now, I think. So, oh, yeah. so beautiful. Now, Sky, I want to hear a little bit about you before we get to all the wonderful wines you make and, and the things that you do. Tell me a little bit about kind of where you grew up and what your kind of childhood was like. Oh, so, I grew up in a little country town um, on the Eyre Peninsula in South Australia, a little town called Sejuna. Um, so, beautiful little country town, about 2,000 people, I think, is the population. Everyone knew everyone. Dad started off there as a local dentist and mum was a receptionist in the local doctor's surgery. So, they literally knew the whole town. But, um, yeah, my childhood was filled with going to the beach, fishing, um, country sports which were very fierce and I'm not super athletic or fierce so I didn't do so well but um, yeah it was it was a great place to grow up no wine around there it's um, a lot of uh, like wheat farming and I think gypsum and things like that salt as well but yeah I I actually find that a lot of people that that gravitate towards wine often come from areas where kind of farming and that outdoor lifestyle um, is quite prevalent. And I think that it's probably a good thing because it teaches you that kind of, you know, to be successful in lots of industries, it takes quite a lot of hard work. Yeah, um, definitely when I was looking at what I wanted to do for like a career, um, I didn't see I didn't see myself sitting in an office all day or anything like that. And yeah, I think 
a big part of why I'm in McLaren Vale um, is that closeness to the ocean as well. I really struggle to be away from like a seaside location. Charlie's always dreamt of um, buying a property maybe in Eden Valley or something like that. No, no, that's far. That's too inland for me. I can't do it. And he's like, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think there's two types of people. One's that like need big open country and some of us like myself and you that need to be near the coastline. Like I feel claustrophobic if I can't see the coast and I totally understand. And there's only a few places in Australia, luckily a few, that you can make great wine and uh, and have that beach lifestyle. So you've nailed it in one. Tell me a little bit about when you decided to study wine. What flicked that switch? How come you chose that uh, form of study? Um, sort of... <laughs> I guess I had a real interest in chemistry at school um, and then also loved art and I guess you kind of get that really nice balance of science and creativity with winemaking. Um, but my whole sort of interest in wine and wineries themselves actually came about, um, I think it might have been in year seven and we went over on a school trip to the Grampians and they actually took us to Seppel's Great Western Winery to do a tour there and just the history behind it, uh, it just felt so magical and it, like there's a lot of, lot of beautiful stories that came out through the tour. We did a cordial tasting at the end, obviously we were underage, but it just it just felt really cool like that people were, I guess, creating something that um, – I guess is a, is a way to record time and place in a bottle and I, I think that really resonated with me. It's, it's a, really, a really nice thing that I, I guess wanted to be a part of. That's great that they, like it, in, in school ages, they're taking you out and showing you kind of the world and professions because it can be really um, impressionable, you know, at such a young age. Now, you went to the University of Adelaide and studied onology there. Um, I believe Charlie, was he a year below, below or ahead of you at that stage? Yeah, he was, he was a year above. Um, I didn't know him at university, but I did meet him once in a tasting because he was, I think he might have been a teacher's pet, so he was pouring wines for one of our tutorials um, oh. in, in one of my classes. So, yeah. <laughs> I bet he was the teacher's pet. That makes so much sense. So, what was your first impression? What was your impression of him when you met him that first time? Well, I didn't really pay too much attention, but um, when I met him again, when we were working together um, a few years later at Hardy's, um, I don't know, he was very serious and he took his job very seriously. And I, th I think, yeah, I, th I think I really respected that. Um, but it found, like, Adelaide's very small and we both did high school in Adelaide. So we, we found a bit of a connection in sort of the people that we knew. And it actually turned out that his, um, one of his good friends from school was the older brother of my best friend, but we didn't know each other through that connection yet either so <laughs> I always find those kind of first impressions or that like it's always fascinating to hear you know obviously <laughs> that changed over time and and you know you got to know each other when you worked um at Hardy's Tintara tell me a little bit about kind of your first posting out of out of university um so we had to do vintage experience in our final year of university and I think at that point in uni like I was very interested in what we were learning but because it was so study based and sort of indoorsy I was like I don't know if this is for me and then I did my vintage experience I was getting my hands dirty 
it sort of everything kind of clicked. It was it felt like where I should be because it was back to doing physical hands on work and and less um, yeah less desk work. Uh, yeah, I, I really loved it, and it, it sort of cemented that that was where I was supposed to be because I did question it just based on the study whether you know it was the path I should be on. But um, yeah, vintage was great. It's it, it's a really exciting time of the year and just fun time. I suppose they need to see that you're you can stick it out in uni. I think that's uh, often part of the the plan with all the lectures, and that is like you know, just kind of sticking through something, which can be really difficult. So I'm glad that you persisted with it because, I don't know, I, I studied dance and I still had to go to three-hour lectures and I just fell asleep at all of them. I just could not be interested and <laughs> I just go straight to sleep. Um, now, you had some amazing experiences um, doing vintage all over the world. We won't cover off all the 20-plus that you must have done, but I want to know a little bit about, you know, in terms of what your experience was in Australia, Shaw and Smith, Wera Wera, you both went back to Tintara at some point as well. So that call must have been interesting. What was kind of your impressions of Australian winemaking? And then when you went overseas, how did that change? Um, I think, uh, I guess in Australia, um, we are really really lucky with the resources we've got in terms of um, fruit, but also our winery equipment is very, very good. Um, the biggest divide I saw working um, overseas, especially in the south of south of France, um, very old equipment, old wineries, really hands-on, whereas Australia's quite modern. So a lot, of the, a lot of the work you don't have to be as, I guess, physically built to do. And I, I'm quite small, so obviously Australian vintages felt, easier for me on my body I remember working in the south of France and every, even the hoses were thick rubber hoses not these sort of lighter ones we use here and just dragging them around all day I'd, I'd get in my bed at night time and try to fall asleep but I couldn't because my body was so sore it was it was, it was crazy and um, yeah I think what I learned overseas I think because I was working at really small estates that had all their own vineyards, um, just that connection to their own vineyards and place. And you do see that in Australia, but we're probably sourcing from uh, grower fruit much more as well. Um, yeah, but it was all really, all really good experience. I love, I love everything I've learnt, learnt from it. Um, working in Burgundy was a very different experience. We weren't. I get, we weren't really paid to do the work. It was more you'd go out picking in the morning, then you'd sit down for a three-course lunch, then you'd like process the fruit in the afternoon and sit down for a three-course dinner, and then you'd rock, paper, scissors to see who would go and clean up the winery after dinner. So very, very different to working 12-hour shifts um, in a big Australian winery. When you said you weren't really paid, my first reaction is kind of shock horror, but then with your explanation of that, I was like, uh, okay. I can kind of <laughs> – paid in food and wine doesn't sound too bad, especially when you're in Burgundy. <laughs> yeah, it was really good, except um, we we drank house wine from a little winery down the road and it was a, the group that we were working with. It was all Aussies and Kiwis and they just get this uh, keg of Aligoto from down the road for us to drink as house, house wine and the, the, the winemaker that we um, got it from was horrified that we came back to get more um, during the one season, he's like, I've never seen people drink this much before. You guys are crazy. What's going on? It's like, yeah, uh, 
yep, fun group of people. Um, and <laughs> I think Aussies and New Zealanders. <laughs> what do you expect? Yeah, exactly. I th- yeah, he should totally expect it. But um, every everyone got really bad reflux as well because of the acid. So too much, too much acid and too much cheese. <laughs> Ah, the hard things you have to deal with during vintage. I love it. Do you think that there was a place that you worked in particular that helped shape you as a winemaker? Um, I'd have to say definitely Hardy's um, because there is a really beautiful long history there in terms of Australian wine. Um, I think the winemaking they do there is is at a really top tier sort of level in terms of quality and just having that control. And I think when you do work in these big places that are so controlled in what they do, they're they're those lessons that you learn and take away and apply on a smaller scale to what you do. Just, yeah, it's just those one percenters, if that makes sense, those little details Mm. that you might not learn in a smaller place that's been, you know, doing something um, with limited capacity um whereas Tintara's got all the resources that you know a winery could have um so I guess you see that other that other level and just how far you can take things and you know what what's what's necessary say in a bad season and things like that I suppose that like anything when you kind of start to see methodology and systems put in place like you said um it's important when you, even if it's on, in a small scale, um, you know, maybe the winemaker can remember what batch has been put where or whatever, but as things grow and as things become more succinct, you really need to have, like you said, those one percenters, those practices that are just put in place that makes things easier and makes things more um, systematic. And, and like you said, so you can control what's happening and not be, um, you know, completely you know coming undone like you said in in a bad season so it is good to hear I mean and then like I said I I think it's fantastic that you had experience at such small places and big places because yeah you can take a little from from each of them and then when you decide to do your own thing you can comply all those lessons so 2018 came around and you both decided to make a little bit of wine for yourselves how did Perelian come about um I guess it was a lot of encouragement from friends and family. Um, we sort of we'd always talked about doing it, but it was it was really scary actually um, taking that plunge. Uh, we'd been, I guess, you don't doubt yourself, but you want to you want to make sure you launch with a, you know, a good product, and um, I guess yeah, you want to have the confidence that you can do it and be successful. We didn't want to I guess start a brand and then have it sort of fade away from neglect or not having any Mm. time to do it or it just not being something that worked um but we yeah we just took the plunge in 2018 um it sort of started with there's a couple of vineyards that we'd we'd worked with at other places that we we really loved um so it kind of started when we could access that fruit it was we were unrelenting i guess um it was that fruit or nothing basically for a couple of the blocks that we wanted to work with we didn't want to I guess just go out there and um, say I want to make a say a Shiraz so let's get what we can get it was I want to work with that vineyard because 
we we see a lot of potential there. It wasn't being made into a single vineyard wine yet, and and we wanted to be the ones to I guess push that. So yeah, it was just getting to that point in our careers where we worked really hard for other people and just wanted to put our own spin on things and and see what see what we could do. It's just getting brave enough to do it. <laughs> I I think um. I was judging for my first stint ever with Charlie as chair at Langhorn Creek Show and on the last night he brought the bottles that of your first vintage and I didn't say it at the time because I was trying to be very cool obviously but um you know it was so amazing I couldn't believe that you know to be part of like the start of a story and to see a wine that's in bottle and you know I, I could see it meant so much to Charlie that he'd finally done this thing you know and it, it was so cool to kind of see them and be like holy shit you made that you did all of that like that's it was really cool and to watch the journey as it's unfolded year after year listing them at key you know every year the wines get more amazing and the story continues and it means a lot I think to people to be involved from that incarnation of hearing about when it was an idea and watching it grow and and Praelian has had such an amazing trajectory and and like I said they just get stronger year in year out but it can't be easy how do you start first of all how did you start working with the growers do you just like you said see a site try and find out who's growing the grapes and then just cold call and say, hey, my name's Sky. what's up? Yep. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly what we what we did and I guess um, explaining to the growers what, what we wanted to do with it and um, I think the growers that we work with have been really excited to work with us because we're passionate about what we do and um, they – They've um, got a real kick out of us making making wines, and, and they are single vineyard wines, and we we name their vineyard on the back label. So they they've been brought along on this journey with us, and so our success is also their success. Um, so I guess like if we were a bigger, you know, if we had a we're blending these wines away into a bigger project, I think it would have been harder. But I think because we are making small batch, detailed wines. Um, I think the growers, the growers were really on board. Uh, it was it was good. A couple of the box took a few years to convince the growers, but um, yeah, we got there. Working with growers, like you said, is is massive in Australia, and it's incredibly important. It's also not an easy feat because you know you've got people that are there day in day out. You guys have lots of other things happening as well. What's the one thing you can do to? do the right thing by the grower? How do you keep that relationship intact? What's important from your point of view um, in looking after them? Um, oh, I think it's just general, yes, the general relationship building, just be, be a good person. I mean, there's there's going to be good and bad seasons. Um, I think being really open and honest about your expectations is a, is a big thing. Um, we, we try not to be too difficult in terms of picking picking times, but sometimes sometimes you have to pick when you have to pick. But just being a bit flexible um, with them as well is, is, yeah, it goes a long way. Um, yeah, all of our growers are really, really easy to work with. And do you decide on, like, price every vintage? Is it the same vintage in and out depending on how much – um, you know, must like how do you how do you have that conversation? So usually it's sorted out um, well before the next season. Um, 
we we sort of got handshake agreements with a couple of our growers and then a contract with um, another one. So it, it's different agreements for different people and sometimes you can be locked in um, for a contract for a few years at the same price, otherwise it's negotiated annually. Um, yeah, just, just have these chats with, with growers and what's happening sort of in the market and quality of fruit. Um, we don't have any issues with quality of fruit, obviously. They're all doing an excellent job at what they do. So, yeah, it's just up for negotiation every every couple of years, I guess. Hmm. It's so interesting because um, that we don't, I think, shine a light on that side of things as much. And um, yeah, I'm always fascinated by it. But like you said, they're all each individual people so it makes sense to treat them as such and if somebody you know really likes to just have that handshake deal and they don't need or care about signing anything and that's the way they've worked um that flexibility is yeah a real a promise promising skill that you both have i want to quickly touch on grenache if we if you don't mind because we haven't talked much about grenache um as a varietal i don't think on this podcast yet and I love Grenache and I like a lot of sommeliers have been flogging and talking about Grenache for years it seems and only in the last few years have finally people started to pick it up but tell me a little bit about your experience with Grenache and the journey it's come on in the time that you've been working with it. Uh, well, I love Grenache too. It's, it's probably my favourite favorite red variety to work with. Um, it's in a really exciting space at the moment in McLarenville. Um whether you remember or not, I was working for Wollonga 100 um, full-time up until late last year, which is Grenache-focused, um, sourcing Grenache from Blue Springs and, and Clarendon as well. So I was working with quite a lot of parcels, and I think the journey that Grenache has taken over the last 10 years has been really exciting. We've, we've taken them from quite big and alcoholic, sort of dense wines into something that's more aromatic. They're really pretty. They've got beautiful acidities and, and freshness and, and a lot more focus and, yeah, purity to them, um, which is really fun. But but for me, Grenache is the most fun to work with just because it is so I, – I guess you can – you can pick it early and get a really beautiful result and you can pick it, you know, late and get a really beautiful result. It, it's so open to winemaker interpretation of what it, what it can be, um, which makes it really, really exciting. So we obviously play with a little bit of a whole bunch. Um, I think people have started to pr- approach Grenache more in a way that you would make Pinot, um, like really preserving purity and aromatics, uh, protecting from oxidation during fermentation. Um, so the quality levels really grown, and obviously the price of Grenache fruit has gone through the roof. And how does it behave in the vineyard? Because it is a hardy variety, isn't it? And it can be trellised, or it can do really well in old bush vines as well. Is it you know finicky, or what's it like? How does it behave um, on site? It's pretty good. Um, so. It's really well uh, conditioned, I guess, for warmer climate. So um, I guess on these really hot days, I always tell people this is a good way to explain it. You know when you grow your veggies and your zucchinis get really sad during the hot weather and tomatoes and the leaves sort of get quite floppy during the day when it's Mm. hot? Um, You'll drive through McLarenvale and you'll see all the leaves of the vines doing that, but then Grenache is still really quite you know, upright and, and happy and it just copes so well with the warm weather. So in that respect, it's the perf- one of the perfect grapes for us to be ha- growing around here. Um, it's I wouldn't say it's finicky at all. I guess 
uh, humid weather can be a problem because it does have thin skin. So there's always that botrytis risk. But McLaramel is pretty lucky in that we don't tend to have um, a lot of rain sort of in the, that crucial sort of ripening period usually. Um, the last couple of years being a little bit of an exception to that. Um, it's quite a vigorous variety as well. Um, I think part of the reason why we're seeing a lot of success in, in Bluet Springs is because Bluet Springs is sandy soil, so it's low nutrient and low water holding. So that effectively controls the vigour naturally. Um, so you're getting a really, really nice concentration of fruit. And, you know, you, if you've got a heavily irrigated Grenache vineyard, they just blow up. The bunches blow up like footballs. They're, you know, very, very big and, and heavy and, and you'll get, like, less colour, less flavour and that sort of thing. So... Well, we don't want that unless we're making some kind of, I don't know, crazy Grenache rosé, but, you know, the fruit there especially. <laughs> Grenache rosé is very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, we don't talk so much about clones in Grenache, but we tend to talk a lot more about soil types. In particular, I love Bluet's Rins. I think that it kind of stands out when you see Grenache from that area. But um, do you see Grenache as something that's really kind of um, transports kind of soils is it is it something that you can see um distinctly yeah um i think i think it is one of those varieties that expresses where it's grown really well um i think a big part of that as well is why making people aren't using a lot of oak um and things like that that are going to interfere with i guess the site flavors that you'll see from from where it's grown um but yeah definitely blue springs you you know, we always see what what we describe as those sandy tannins and uh, just that real purity of fruit and that clarity of flavour. Whereas the um, the Grenache I was working with from Clarendon, it's on sort of more loamy soils, and you would sort of get a few more sort of floral and savoury notes through there rather than these like really bright um, sort of red raspberry characters that we see in Blue Springs. So yeah, it, it shows sight really well. Uh, I remember doing quite a bit of blind tasting in my career and I I love Grenache and I would always feel really confident picking out a Chateau Neuf de Pup because I would put my nose in the glass and I just would fall in love with the aromas, you know, the, just that kind of wild raspberry and Morello cherries. And I just remember thinking like, oh, my God, this is so seductive and so beautiful. And that, you know, little bit of prickly heat was like just identifying for me. And I'd be like, oh, this is Grenache 100%. And I'm so excited now because there's such a range of Grenache in Australia. We've kind of come into that place now where there is so many different styles. How how does like a consumer going about going about into a bottle shop buying a bottle of Grenache? How do they work out kind of what they're going to get, whether it's big, dark, like you said, maybe higher alcoholic, jammy, rich numbers or the light ethereal kind of styles? Because it must be quite confusing. They buy a bottle and then they walk away and go, that's not what I thought I was getting. Yeah, that, that is a really good question and I, I probably don't have the right answer for it. I, th- I think, yeah, a lot of people would – expect one thing and get the other and there's no real I don't think there's any real way to I guess have that on a label it's probably more about understanding the producer and their style Um, so whether a consumer is willing to do a little bit of research before they buy but a lot of the places that we like that sell our Grenache are these small independent 
wine stores that you know the the people that work there know know the wines know their range and can recommend something to a customer so i think that's going to be how the customer is going to learn i guess what style they want and what producers they should be looking at is i guess that hand selling that happens in those really lovely little stores and also soms in restaurants as well um yeah like i think consumers will need to be guided through um yeah the selection Absolutely, a bit like we are with Chardonnay these days and and whether it be Savion Blanc or Fumé Blanc or whatever, you know, it, do, it doesn't always, um, like you said, it doesn't always kind of, you can't write it necessarily on the label, but people start to know brands. What I like about Paralian when you guys first launched too is that you had, you know, your kind of Bluet Springs Grenache um, and then you had like your Marmont, but then you also had your Shiraz Grenache, which I think really tells a great story about, McLaren Vale because it's uh, two varieties that have been blended together for quite some time and it kind of I think when you first launched it walked you through kind of a way to enjoy all the wines in succession or, or, or to understand okay here's kind of this really crunchy bright red fruited thing here's with a little bit kind of a Shiraz stuffing and that medium bodied note and then you have the density of your, your Shiraz as well and I think that that's a really good way to kind of give people perhaps um, an experience of Grenache, but in a way that's kind of um, quite easy for them to understand too. Yeah. For us, it was really important to do um, that blend. Like a Grenache Shiraz for us really speaks of McLaren Val. Um, it is pretty traditional. Charlie worked at Darenberg um, in his early career and I was at Wirra Wirra and they both have these original blends that are Grenache Shiraz. So that's that's what we were drinking when we were young winemakers. It was sort of those really yummy, juicy wines that had everything, like lovely aromatics like you were saying and, and that lovely density and um, generosity on the palate from Shiraz. Um, yeah, so it was, it was a no-brainer for us to, to do that and we still say that that is McLaren Vale in a bottle and it, it is a really nice way to push people that are probably just Shiraz drinkers sort of into that middle ground and introduce them to Grenache and then – like it's easy to explain to someone when they taste that how it's different to a Shiraz and what the Grenache is adding and then they take that next step into exploring just straight Grenache. Perfect. And then they can be diehard fans like us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you are releasing your Springs Hill Cabernet Sauvignon, which I'm thrilled to see. I did think when I met Charlie, good God, how long will it be before he makes a Chardonnay? And, of course, within a couple of years, there was your amazing Adelaide Hill Chardonnay offering. And then when I saw that you were releasing a Cabernet, I just went, of course you are, because Charlie likes Cabernet. I adore Cabernet. I don't know. How you, how do you feel about Cabernet? <laughs> it's actually the first thing that we've thought about whether we would make a Cabernet or not. Um, Paralian's been pretty cruisy. We, we tend to like the same sort of wine styles, but I'm not a huge Cabernet drinker. Um, so this was, this was really Charlie pushing. He's like, we're going to make a Cabernet one day. I'm like, no, we're not. We're not. We're never going to do it. And he's like, no, no, we are. And I'm like, no, Charlie, we're not going to do it. And then it, I think it was halfway through vintage in, in 2022. And he's like, guess what? We're picking Cabernet in two weeks. And I'm like, uh, excuse me? What? Are you serious? He's like, yep. And I'm like, oh, my God, here we go. Um, but it's a really beautiful vineyard and we're really, really privileged to work with this fruit. It's it's lovely 
lovely fruit, like tiny, tiny little berries. Um, just, yeah, lo- loads of all the flavours that we love to see in Cabernet. So like those blue fruits and it doesn't really have that greenness um, at sort of those lower alcohols that you sometimes see in Cabernet. So Charlie's pretty happy with that too. Um, yeah, it, it's been a really lovely addition to our range. I think Cabernet's still not like I don't I don't know when it's going to be back on trend but I think I feel like there's a revival coming and and I think I think the style that we've made it's not big and chunky and it's it's quite elegant and everything's kind of in the right place and the acid's really bright and um yeah I think for us making making a wine that you have a glass of and then you want to finish off the rest of the bottle rather than have a glass and go, wow, you know, that was enough for me is is a really big, big thing. And a lot of the Cabernets that were coming out were just really built up with, I guess, a lot of oak, uh, really extracted, um, just heavy dry reds. And I, I think Cabernet can be such an expressive and beautiful variety if it's picked at the right time. So hope, hopefully we've achieved that in the bottle. I love that. I think I agree with you. There is going to be a revival and I think it might come back to perhaps people selling wine a little bit more than what we are. But I love and and it's very clear even from some of the words you have on your website, you talk about, you know, delicious drinking and wines that look great on release but can sell it. And I think that that's exactly where we need to be in Australia at the moment um, to kind of combat the fact that we've had a lot of big, heavy wines made that, like you said, were over-alcoholic or that took, you know, 30 years in a cellar. Like who's got 30 years to kind of for that long game? So I think we're in a great spot. But I think we will see that little bit of ebb and flow back to, you know, people are still cellaring their Barolos, you know. They're still kind of – you talk to a winemaker and they've got a few Barolos hidden away and a few kind of Bordeaux. So I think we might see that trend shift again. But I agree with you. Cabernet can be very, very pretty. Um, yeah, and if it's not, you know, green and, and mean and not smoky and oaky, then we've got some really beautiful things to look forward to. So I'm, I'm really excited to try your Springs Hill Cabernet um, and I'm glad that that's added to the story. And if it falls on its face, you can just blame Charlie. We will all just blame Charlie. Exactly. You all heard it here. It was his idea. <laughs> I love it. Sky, so I can learn a little bit more about your palate. If you only could have three drinks for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? <laughs> uh, definitely Chardonnay. Um, both Charlie and I are huge Chardonnay lovers and Chardonnay I could drink every day of the week through winter, summer, um, and just the variety in it is, is really lovely. Um, I think champagne, I could not go past champagne either because you need it for celebration, right? Like it's not a celebration without popping a bottle of champagne or sparkling. I'll have Aussie sparkling too because some really beautiful varieties out there. Um, And then I think you probably need to have cocktails for holidays. So probably a good mojito or or a margarita, I guess. Yeah, something with a lot of lime in it. Yeah, and it goes with your kind of vibes of being a bit of a beach girl to have like a delicious, refreshing cocktail and after a bit of time in the sun and the sand. So that's very on trend for you. I like it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) 
Sky, it's been so lovely to chat with you. Uh, I hope that we get to drink some Grenache sometime together. And it's always just lovely to hear what you're up to. Um, congratulations on working on Paralian uh, full-time now. I imagine it is um, a very busy gig, but it's a beautiful brand and uh, I wish you the very best with with how it goes. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, yeah, and thank you for all your kind words about Paralian. It's definitely... Yeah, it's been it's been a journey, and hopefully, it's something that um, is successful in the future. And yeah, you'll see more of us. I hope. Excellent. Sounds good. Cheers to you, Sky. Thanks. This is over a glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at over a glass pod. And contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.